let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started. I'm assuming folks will trickle in as we go. It's raining, so. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again this week to uh, recall to our minds and our hearts your great salvation through Christ. We come here again to spur one another on to love and good works through our songs and and prayers. And um, we come here specifically in this next 40, 45 minutes or so to um, see how you, through your Holy Spirit, have worked through uh, our spiritual ancestry, those who've gone before us, whom you've placed before us. And so come now, Lord, and, and help me and help us all to see how wonderful you are and um, cause our hearts to, to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I know most of you in here. Some of you I, I still don't know. But I'm Colton Moore. I've been here about a year. Uh, I and, and my, my three little kids. And um, I got really interested in church history and the early church um, several years ago as I was finishing up seminary up north. And so whenever uh, I was asked to, 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 to lead one of, the, one of the sessions, I was really, really excited. Um, I just watched uh, uh, the newer rendition of 310 to Yuma. You, you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know 310 to Yuma. Okay, yeah. Raise your hand if like you um, think... If you know, um, I mean, there's tons of Western shows. Like, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a really nice modern one, like Open Range, right? Yeah. Like, um, oh, Braveheart. It's not really Western, but Braveheart or like The Patriot, right? Right. Okay. Now, what about um, like old books, like old stories? Anybody, anybody in here readers like to read old fiction, fiction novels? Mr. House is. I would be willing to wager that the reason we like uh, old books or, or, or really good stories or old Western movies or just uh, um, movies in general, especially those in the past, is because they uh, open us up to an entire worldview, culture, a time period that's, um, for the most part, foreign to us. I'm watching 310 to Yuma a few nights ago thinking, I have no idea. I have no conception of what it's really like to live out in Arizona when the frontier is just like civilization just coming. I have no idea. And so whenever we go to the early church, it's a similar feeling. You pick up an old book by, as uh, Andrew uh, taught a couple weeks ago, of St. Augustine, and it's like entering into a whole new world with... with, um, different theological sensitivities. They're, they're more attuned to um, emphasize certain things that we may not emphasize today. Um, and it, it, it really kind of expands our horizons for um, how we understand uh, the Scriptures and what the Scriptures teach. And so this morning, I'm going to quickly review for us where we've been the last few weeks. And then um, I'm going to focus on... Uh, uh, I'm going to pick up where Corey left off last week and uh, talk about some of the doctrinal um, uh, uh, 
progressions, if you will, uh, in, in the Western church, and then how those progressions set us up for what's coming next week with the dawn of the, the Reformation and Martin Luther. So, where to start? Well, we've got the apostles in the New Testament. And uh, after the apostles, we have the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD where the Romans come in and take over and they, and they sack the place. And what that did was that really clearly distinguished Christianity from Judaism. Up until then, it was more or less like a sect of Judaism. But when, when that happened, Christians and Jews had to flee and they're their own separate entities now. So the Christian faith could, could go and, and, and speak openly um, uh, as a separate entity from Judaism. Then, probably roughly around 90 to 100 A.D., we have uh, a clear distinction of a threefold office of the church, where we have a, uh, whereas in the New Testament, the terms for, for uh, uh, pastor and elder are synonymous. Um, by like 100 or so, for whatever reason, we have a big distinction. We have what's called a pastor or a bishop, an elder or a presbyter, and a deacon. And that whole system really propels forward into the church and sets us up for um, other progressions coming forward. And so that happens both in the East um, and in the West. Uh, and then last week we talked about ecumenical councils. Now, the ecumenical councils were um, basically meetings. Think of um, meetings of the most prominent pastors and churches and as many Christians as, as they could get to come together in one space to talk about doctrine. What do we believe? We've got, these, we've got these other people who are saying things that are not true about God. Jesus is not a created being. Um, uh, the New Testament Gospels are true and don't... Uh, uh, um, I'm, I'm thinking of a guy named Marcion who, who cut and pasted books of the Bible that they were combating against. And so these meetings were... Were, uh, were held to clarify what we, what we believe. And so we've got seven of those. I put a nice little uh, uh, chart there for you. You can see the, 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 the general topics discussed. And as the church is going forward, you've got this east and west, like, constant tension. Because you've got, in the east, like, when, when I say east, think of, like, uh, if you can picture your map, uh, Jerusalem, up north you've got Syria, you've got even... Um, where uh, Troy and um, uh, Ephesus is. And in the west, you've got like Italy, Rome, and even north of Rome up into Gaul, what we know is like southern, um, southern Europe, more or less. And it's the Latin speaking. You've got Greek and Latin, and there's lots of linguistic, they speak different languages, uh, divides and cultural clashes, and lots of miscommunication as a result. I think a lot of the problems that we have in the east and the west in the early church a lot of it has to do with we're just not understanding one another. We're miscommunicating, et cetera, and so forth. And that bulges up to um, 1054 to 1200-ish with the Great Schism. At that point, we, we officially have an East and a Western church, Roman, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and we don't like you, we don't like you, division, not good, no bueno. Um, <clears throat> and... In the West, in the West, after the big split, you've got the, the, the rise of universities. So like uh, universities and, and schools where um, theological um, thought and teaching is really progressing. 
And we talked about that last week. Corey did a great job with that. But in, in the East at this time, <clears throat> um, you've got around 1435, you've got, you've got Muslims now. And, and, and the Muslims come up and they basically take over the Eastern Church by 1435. They sack the city of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. You, like, whenever you think of Istanbul, um, uh, uh, have, you, have you seen the big, um, you, you know what the Hagia Sophia is? Have you heard of that? The, the big, is it one of the seven wonders of the world, Ryan? Is that right? The Hagia Sophia? Well, like, it's a Christian building taken over by, um, by the Islamic uh, uh, nations. And so, they're sacked. Meanwhile, you've got Eastern Christians who infiltrate Russia. They go up to Russia, and they, and, they, and they have a pretty strong presence. Then the Mongols come from the east. Mongols north of China take over. And, uh, but the, 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 the Russian Orthodox Church takes back over. That's more or less what's happening over there. So in, in the west, you've got pretty much um, freedom to uh, think and to, and, to, and to write and to educate. In the east, they're oppressed by the, by the, by the Islamic regime. In the north, up in Russia, in the east, um, there, there's more or less freedom there to, to express their, uh, their, their eastern their ideas. Now today, we're coming um, f- from a western perspective. And so we're, we're back in, like, uh, in Europe, in the Roman Catholic Church. Whereas last week, Corey talked about how uh, we have in, in the west um, a good deal amount of uh, theological progression in a good sense, where we've got, well, he talked about Anselm of Canterbury, who he talked about, Bernard of Clairvaux, and then St. Thomas Aquinas, and how they really paved the way for um, giving the church language to speak about God in a true way. A lot of the language that we're, we're currently, even still as Protestants, in debt to. Um, with that came some mess, and so, which set the stage for um, reform in the, in the 1500s. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that mess right now. So one of the, one of the progressions that happened was with uh, the Pope and Mary. So doctrinal progressions of the West from the 1700s to the 1500s. Um, as, we know, as we've learned before, in, in the West, the, the, the head honcho in charge was the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, uh, uh, in other words. In the early church, the way the church would, would uh, operate and come to theological agreements was through a conciliar decision. Like you have all five bishops um, and, 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 and presbyters coming together, talking, having a conversation. But it was always kind of like this tension because in the West, you've got the Bishop of Rome saying, hey, I'm the successor of Peter. I've got the keys. You do what I say. And others are like, mm, not really. But whenever the, whenever the big schism happened, the Pope's now free to basically assert his authority, and so he does. And some of that development happens, and so um, I think I've got it in your outline. There's a quote uh, from the donation of, uh, of Constantine where it says, the Pope is, quote, he's the supreme temporal Lord of the West, and we attribute to him the power and glorious dignity and strength uh, in honor of the empire. And we ordain and decree that he, the Pope, shall have rule as well over the four principal seas of Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. Now, those four, other, those four cities, those were the, the, that's where the other bishops are, the other main head honcho pastors of, of the church at large, in those four cities. And he says, I am in charge of them, which means I'm in charge of the entire church. 
and also over the churches of God and the world. So the popes got supreme authority to more or less generally to um, make decisions. It, it would be similar to, um, I don't know, like, I don't think of an example that's good. I don't know. Just, just think of your marriage. Like, it, similar. It's not quite exactly the same, but it's similar. Like, if you, um, I'm assuming most couples in here, I could be assuming a lot, but I'm just assuming most couples in here, when it concerns, like, financial um, decisions, it's generally a, a conversation, right? Like, we're going to go, like, if we're going to drop three grand on this addition to the house, we're going to, like, talk about that before we do it. So it'd be, it'd be similar to, like, Ryan telling Catherine, Catherine, we're going to drop five grand on the house tomorrow, period. I'm like, ah, oh, that's not really how we've done things in the past. I, I know, but I, I'm over-exaggerating, but it would, it would have that kind of feeling to it. And there were other reasons um, that, 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 that led up to that. But so that's a big one, and that's going to play into some of the things that we talk about in just a second. The, the, the second progression, uh, one of the other ones, was um, the, uh, what's called Mariology, the teachings and, and thought of the Virgin Mary. And um, often Mary was called the mediatrix in Latin, which just means mediator. And immediately you're thinking, huh, Mary, a mediator? Interesting. So um, this, this idea of, of Mary as like an, an, uh, an intermediary between you and God uh, was, was developed over a long period of time, like um, in order to protect... Mary's what's called immaculate conception. That is that's something that we believe. We believe that Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Immaculate conception. So in order to protect that, um, and also the two natures of Christ, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is only our Lord and Savior because he's both God and man, Mary then was given special honor in the, in the, in the earliest centuries of the church. Um, like, I've wrestled with this personally, uh, in, 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 the, in the past years, thinking like, man, we evangelicals, we don't talk a whole lot about Mary, but Mary seems like a big deal. She's the only person in the world who carried the Son of God in her womb as a virgin. That's a huge deal. Of course, we don't worship her. We don't, she's not our mediator between God and man, but like, it's, a, it's an incredibly important figure in the, in, in the Bible. Um, yeah, okay. So, just a few quotes here. Uh, in 10th century, we, we got a guy named uh, Otto from, 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 from France. He said, quote, Through St. Mary the Virgin, who is the only hope of the world, the gates of paradise have been opened to us and the curse of Eve has been canceled. You can kind of see how the language there is, is a little bit problematic. The only hope of the world. Mary? Not so much. Two, uh, 200 years later, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, we talked about last week. Our Lady... Our mediatrix, that is our mediator, our advocate, reconcile us to thy son, commend us to thy son, represent us to thy son. So there's a prayer to Mary asking um, her to reconcile us to Jesus. Problematic, right? You can see that. And then it, in 1964, this is um, from Pope Paul VI uh, in his Lumen Gentium, which means light of the nations. Uh, Mary, quote, was taken up to heaven. She did not lay aside this salvific duty, but by her constant intercession continued to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation, 
which is a site from, the, from their catechism. This, however, is to be understood that it neither takes away from nor adds anything to the dignity and the efficaciousness of Christ the Son, the, the one mediator. So basically, basically he's, he's asserting in 1964, the Catholic Church, that Mary plays an integral role to our salvation and brings us gifts of, of eternal salvation. But this doesn't take away anything from uh, Christ's uh, 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 work for us in salvation. It's a little confusing. So here's, here's how both Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox would, 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 um, would uh, I think, uh, defend themselves. They would say that we don't worship Mary. We worship the one true God. But we give her due honor. And they distinguish between a few different Greek terms. I think I put it in the quotes there, I think. So um, they, they distinguish between a Greek word called latria, which means spiritual worship, to the one God alone, dulia, which means like honorable duty to someone, hyperdulia, which means adoration, and proskinesis, which means like prostration, like bending down, like that right there. But it's, but it's, it's still confusing to me because all these terms in uh, either the Greek New Testament or even uh, the, New Test- the Old Testament that the apostles would have used, which would be in the Greek translation, all these terms refer to worship of the one God alone. And when it does refer to a man, um, you can imagine in the Old Testament or even like uh, in Acts, it's like, hey, get up, I'm not God. So like in Acts 10, um, 25 to 26, quote, when Peter entered, Cornelius, a Roman official, met Peter, and he fell down at his feet and worshipped him. That same word, proskinesis, worshipped him. But you know what Peter said? Peter said, he lifted him up and said, get up. I too am a man. What's the assumption? You only do that to God. You only bow down to God that way. So, that's developing in the, in the Middle Ages in the West. It's also a doctrine in the East that's still practiced uh, today. Um, as problematic as those are, I think the next two progressions um, are even more problematic that really set the stage for um, what's going to come next week with the advent of, of Martin Luther. Penance and indulgences, because, because I think uh, the problem of penances and indulgences gets uh, closer to the heart of um, um, a, a distortion of the, of the gospel, okay, in a more explicit way. So, penance. Boniface, in the 8th century, he wrote, quote, penance became the second form of cleansing, second form of cleansing after the sacrament of baptism. So that the evils we do after the washing of baptism may be healed by the medicines of penance. What is penance? Has anybody ever heard the term penance? What's penance? Mr. House, how would you how would you describe penance if you if you hear the term? Right, and so in a sense, I think. On like, a, on like an everyday basis between friends, family members, spouses, uh, relatives, penance, in, in that definition, is like kind of all right, maybe, right? Like, like I come up to Tyler, and, I, and like we're like in an argument, and I like, I just like, I deck him. And he, and he would expect me to like 
come back to him and, and, and reconcile. Would that be considered penance? I'm not terribly sure. That's more like forgiveness and reconciliation. But like penance would be like these, uh, the church was required to do works, good works to make up for the sins that they've committed, giving alms, helping a friend out, etc., and so forth. And those acts themselves were taught to be a second cleansing after baptism. Like you're washing away your sins by doing penance. Problematic, right? That, it, goes, it goes against the grains of um, uh, Ephesians 2 and uh, being saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. The next one's really similar. Indulgences. <clears throat> Indulgences. Now, there was um, uh, what's called a treasury of merit, like a surplus. It was taught that, that, that uh, the church has a surplus of merit. You, you do these good gifts, you fill up your, your, your good works um, bucket, and whatever you have left over is your surplus to be given away to others. So here's a quote. I don't know if I have it printed in, in, in your outline, but it's, why, but it's by Sproul, and I think it's pretty good. The treasury of merit, he says, is made up of both the merit of Christ okay, and the merit of the saints. The saints live lives of such sanctity, that is holiness, that they accrue more merit than they need for themselves. So I do, I do a bunch of works, and I've, I've accrued up more good works to, to help my soul than I need. Okay? They do this by performing works of, here's a big word, supererogation. That is, works done above and beyond the call of duty. Thus, the surplus of merit of the saints may be drawn from the treasury to aid those who receive indulgences. So indulgences were um, often in the form of, like, money. You gave money, and you could gain some sort of salvific benefit for yourself or for a friend or for a relative. When we get to next week, there's, a, there's, a, there's this really wild figure. I forget his name, but, like, he would... He would um, uh, yeah, 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 that's all. If I'm not mistaken, they're trying to pay for the, a big cathedral. Yeah, St. Peter's Basilica. And, 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 the, and the thing that he would use to, to get people to give them money was like when, um, when the coin in the coffer rings, like you throw, throw your money in the bin, uh, a soul from purgatory springs or something like that. Like give your money to save your friend's time in purgatory. Give your money to, to save the soul of a, of a lost loved one. And, um, like, if I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, I, I can envision how they could probably get there earnestly, like, in, in their hearts, not trying to be malicious. But I can even more quickly believe how that, that such a teaching could be used to manipulate the masses to get what, um, to, to get for the Pope and the Roman Catholic officials what they wanted. And, and unfortunately, that's in large part what was happening. Um, so, penance, indulgences, next one is purgatory. It's kind of like sanctification after this. I, I've got a really good Roman Catholic fr friend that I taught with in Frisco for a couple of years, and uh, I texted him this week, and I was like, hey, um, if you have time, let's talk on the phone. I want to hear your best biblical case from the Bible, purgatory. He didn't have time. He's, he's, re he's, starting, he's starting up a new business, but he sent me some, some pages this morning in a, in a text um, I only read a couple of them. 
But um, I'll, I'll read you what Pope Innocent said in the 13th century, 1254, Pope Innocent IV. He said, quote, The souls of those who die after receiving penance, but die without having had time to complete it, or who die without mortal sin, like mortal sin is like sins that will send you straight to hell, period. Uh, but guilty of venial sins, or minor faults, are purged after death and may be helped by the suffrages of the church. For in this temporary fire, sins, not of course crimes of capital errors, which could not previously have been forgiven through penance, but slight and minor sins, are purged. If they have not been forgiven during existence, they weigh down the soul after death. In short, purgatory is a place where if, you're, if, you still, if a person, if a, Christ, a, a Christian, not an unbeliever, Unbelievers go to hell, they believe. But Christians, if you die with some sort of besetting sin or some sort of unrepentant sin, you're placed in this intermediate state where you're purged by the mercy and love of God from that sin before entering into heaven because God's a holy God and he can't stand, uh, rather, and sinful beings can't stand in his presence and live. So they get further cleansed to stand in his presence. Um, problem, well, isn't Christ's death enough to, to cleanse us of all of our sins? Well, what need, therefore, is purgatory from our, from our perspective? Okay, we'll keep going. Next one, the Lord's Supper and the doctrine of transubstantiation. We're flying, flying through all of this. Like, I was talking with Ryan earlier this week. It's just like, we're just going through all this just enough to kind of give you definitions like, oh, that's what that means. Oh, that's what that means. And hopefully you can think about it and, and talk with others throughout the week and maybe get to a, a more concrete uh, <laughs> definition of some of these things. Okay, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Now, the Roman Catholic view and even the Eastern Orthodox view of the Lord's Supper um, is rooted in the first and second century words of the early church. Um, Christ Community Church we believe that the Lord's Supper is a, uh, a memorial, a declaration of, uh, of the gospel. Like you, you, take, you eat this and you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But, but just follow me here. I'm trying to present, them, I'm try, I'm trying to, to, to present this the way Roman Catholics themselves would, would present it. So they would say, look at a text like Matthew 26 where Christ says, Take, eat, this is my body. It's a literal interpretation of that. They say, this is my, my body. Go to the Gospel of John, where Christ says, I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, combine their, their assumption of, like, biblical authority. They believe that the Bible is authority, but they also believe that church tradition is authority. Well, what is church tra tradition? Church tradition is the teachings of all of the, the Orthodox church fathers, Right? one of which is Ignatius of Antioch back in the first century, right here, where he says, quote, breaking one bread, which is the medicine of immortality, the antidote we take in order not to die, but to live forever in Jesus Christ. They, they heretics, abstain from the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and prayer because they refuse to acknowledge the Lord's Supper, Eucharist, to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. So... Salvation is connected to the Lord's Supper there. Because in the Lord's Supper, they would say, is the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Eastern Orthodox believe that. Roman Catholics believe that. But the, 
the doctrinal development, the, the, the development of doctrine that we see in the Roman Catholic Church is not that, but the explaining of how the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. Um, Fourth Lateran Council, 1215. I think I've got that printed. Quote, Jesus Christ, body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread being changed, there's your Latin word for transubstantiation, by the divine power into the body and the wine into the blood. And this sacrament no one can affect except the priest who has been duly ordained. Okay, so... The, body, the, the, the Eucharist turns into the body and blood of Christ only by an ordained priest in the apostolic succession. That is, a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church can't stand up and administer the Eucharist. Only a bishop or a priest in the line of the apostles, Peter, can. The development, as I said, is called transubstantiation. And it's basically an attempt to explain how the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. It gets really confusing. Let me try to confuse you. At the prayer of the bishop, the bishop or the priest will pray a prayer over the bread and the wine. The, the bread and the wine are still bread and wine by their properties, but change on the inside into the physical, physical, not spiritual, physical body and blood of Jesus. So when you ingest it, you're drinking the physical body and blood of Jesus, but you're tasting bread and wine. It's a little confusing. Luther um, is going to have a more spiritual interpretation of that, that in the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ spiritually you gain a particular spiritual nourishment from the Lord's Supper when you take it. You, that is like, like you gain a, a particular strength from the very body and blood of Christ on the cross in the Lord's Supper. That's what, spiritually, that's what Luther would say. Catholics would say it's the physical body and blood. There are even stories of, uh, of folks later on saying that, that they, they'll describe chewing the flesh. And, and that gets a little strange for me. But, okay, those are some of the big doctrinal developments in, in, the, in the Western Roman Catholic tradition. Now, how does this set us up in the next 10 minutes for, um, for reform? Well, as you're kind of feeling right now, there's dissatisfied angst in the church. So we, get a, we, we come across a guy named John Wycliffe. He's... he's uh, Quote, he's, he's titled like the, the grandfather of the Reformation. He was an English philosopher and a theologian at Oxford University under the jurisdiction of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, where he stands out is that he, he amidst all this, uh, amidst all the, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, he had a pe peculiar high view of the Scriptures and um, uh, a pretty... Um, Radical is probably not the right word, but I'll just use it. Radical reliance on St. Augustine for, for theology. So he wrote, quote, It is impossible for any part of Holy Scripture to be wrong. In Holy Scripture is all the truth. So he's, he's known for challenging Roman officials and um, questioning their authority on the basis of Scripture. Hey, you cardinals and, and popes, you're doing this, but the holy apostles in the Scriptures are teaching this. What's the problem here? 
Um, Wycliffe's probably known um, um, most prominently for the, the first ever translation of the Bible into English. Ah, yes. He, he, tra- he translated the first work of the first Bible into, into uh, English. Uh, he also taught that justification is uh, through Christ alone. He wrote, quote, Trust wholly in Christ, rely altogether on his sufferings, and beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Ah, that sounds like the New Testament. He says, Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation, and that without faith it is impossible to please God. That the merit of Christ is able, here it is, by itself to redeem all mankind from hell, and that this sufficiency is to be understood without any cause, with any other cause concurring. Christ alone. And this is like uh, 1300s, 14th century, like, like before really any reformers uh, got a foothold. So, as I said earlier, he uh, unashamedly challenged papal authority. He says that the, that, that the church authority is rooted in uh, grace and grace alone. He, in 1381, he was dismissed from his Oxford University position. Now, at this time, the, the universities in Europe were um, under the jurisdiction of the Holy Roman Empire. Like, the, the church controlled the universities. So you, you go against church doctrine, you, could, you face the threat of getting kicked out of your teaching position at a university if you're a teacher. And he did. Um, he, there, there were followers of Wycliffe who... who latched on to him and said, ah, here's a guy that we can follow. And they're called the Lollards. The Lollards. The, the, now, the, the Lollards faced severe persecution by the, by the Catholic Church for following Wycliffe's teaching, uh, which continued for at least another century. And so in 1519, actually, so this is like, uh, what is this? Yeah, 135 years after Wycliffe's death in 1384. So roughly 150 years after Wycliffe's death, the Lollards um, Catholics, Catholic officials burned alive, like burned alive, seven Lollards, followers of Wycliffe. Why? For teaching their children the Lord's Prayer from the Bible. So, in, in my opinion, I, I, I think the main problem with, with the Roman Catholic Church in this era, in this era, was that uh, there was lots of selfish ambition and, and, and greed and pride. And they were using um, Christian theology and their religious status to pretty much get what they wanted. It's, 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 sim- it's really similar to the Pharisees. Do the Pharisees really believe in Moses and the prophets? I don't, I don't really think, at least the bad ones, I don't really think so. I think they just want their own personal status. And I think that's what we're seeing in the... Roman Catholic Church, and guys like Wycliffe are saying, hey, we have this thing called the Bible, the apostolic teaching that we need to be uh, following. After this, uh, shortly after, we have a guy named John Huss who, who succeeded uh, John Wycliffe. He, now, he was in, um, uh, in Prague, not, not, in, not, in, uh, not in Britain. So he's a faculty member at Prague University, and he was a well-known preacher of the time in the Roman Catholic Church. So following the teachings of Wycliffe, he made, uh, he, he resisted various doctrines of the Catholic churches. So for, exa- for example, on indulgences, here's what John Huss had to say. Uh, indulgences are useless because God himself 
not man's money or possessions, forgives the sins of those who truly repent and turn to Christ by faith. Mm-hmm. On the Pope, he said, quote, The Pope is not the head, nor are the cardinals the whole body of the Holy Catholic and Universal Church. Only Christ is the head, and his predestined people are the body, and each is a member of that body. Yeah. Now, on the nature of the true church, he said, because one big thing, even now to this day, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches, they would say that, where is the, where is the one true church? They would say, well, we have it. In the Roman Catholic church is the one true church. The Eastern Orthodox would say, no, we have it in our church. As Protestants, we would say, well, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the New Covenant, blood-bought people is a fundamental spiritual unity. So the true church is found everywhere. I mean, in one sense, we can know true believers. In another sense, only God knows, right? Here's what Huss had to say. God's church is the entirety of his predestined elect from generations past, present, and future who are elected by God's grace alone, apart from any merit in themselves. This is where, August, uh, this is where his reliance on Augustine shows forth. I had a professor in seminary um, in systematic theology where we just talk about various doctrines of the church. He would always say, I'm not a Calvinist. Like, oh, well, you're going to John Piper's school. You, you better be a Calvinist. <laughs> He's like, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm an Augustinian. I follow Augustine. And, w- and his point there was, hey, Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. Calvin followed Augustine. And so I follow Augustine. And so you see something similar here with, um, uh, with Huss. And so with both these folks, Wycliffe and, and John Wycliffe and John Huss, you sense a really deep angst, a dissatisfaction um, uh, with the Roman Catholic church and a desire for reform. That's why Wycliffe's called the grandfather of the, the, uh, the Reformation. Who would be, if he's the grandfather, who would be the father? Martin Luther, right. So that, and, and that's next week. Um, you also see with these two figures uh, a deep commitment to the Scriptures and holding their authorities, popes and cardinals, to the Scriptures, Hey, what are the scriptures saying? And we need to follow that. Um, Last bit, Huss's death. Uh, Huss, in uh, 1414, was invited to a council to uh, basically defend his position. Similar to Martin Luther, which is what we'll we'll learn about next week. Um, Invited the council um, to defend his views, though he was given protection by the Roman emperor, saying, hey, come, come. Tell us what you believe. We promise we're not going to kill you. We promise we're not going to take you prisoner. Huss agrees. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. But the Catholic Church never allowed him to defend his views. Furthermore, they laughed at him, and they threw him into prison. And the next year, the following year, they killed him. So on July 6th in 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake and purportedly recited the following as some of his last words, I shall die, quote, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached, end quote. And so with that, we have some seeds planted in the Roman Catholic Church for reform. And next week, we're going to learn about one particular 
uh, Roman Catholic monk who causes a big stir in the Roman Catholic Church and paves the way forward for um, uh, Protestantism. So, um, that's all I've got. That's all I've got. So, let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, it's, it's really encouraging to see how even through not just broken and not just sinful, um, but even particularly sinful and particularly broken people, you accomplish your great purposes. That even through a church that is so messed up, we are, we are a pretty poor bride to our husband Christ. Yet your mercy and your grace and your power still, still prevails. And we're, we're here today. I mean, we're, <laughs> in a way, we're, Lord, we're, we're not that much better than the church 500, 600, 700 years ago. And your mercy is still here. Your scriptures are still being read. And your people are still praying and singing and worshiping you and gathering with you and trusting wholly in the good news once delivered. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit will keep your people till the end through uh, all the mess that we make. So come today. Um, be with us especially this morning as we uh, pray and sing and read together and as we sit under the preaching pro and proclamation of your holy scriptures uh, in Jesus name for his glory. Amen.